Welcome to Shelf Logic, the official podcast of the Maricopa County Library District. Welcome, everyone. Do you enjoy social satire, the exposure of greedy, hypocritical bureaucrats, magic, fantasy? How about philosophical debates and political intrigue, demonic pranksters and diabolical decadence? How about a romance that literally goes to hell and back? And last, but definitely not least, a giant talking black cat with a fondness for vodka, guns, and cheating at chess? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you've come to the right place, as today we'll be discussing Mikhail Bulgakov's modern classic, The Master and Margarita. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to Check This Out. Woohoo! My name is Rob, and I'm here with Kristen. How you doing, Kristen? Doing great. Well, here we are. This is, this is the episode that I really look forward to each and every year, Banned Books Week. Yes. I just love Banned Books. I love Banned Books. They're always the best ones, in my opinion. And the one we're going to talk about today is one of my favorite books of all time, Mikhail Bugakov's The Master and Margarita. And not everybody knows this book. No, a surprising number of people have never heard of it, and I was vaguely aware of it, but I'm so glad that you introduced this topic because I just, I love it, and I just never get tired of it. Me too. Uh, every time I read this book, it's the best time. Like, the book gets better on every read. It's yes. just so complex uh, and deep and and, you know... You could call it dark, but it's it's kind of dark in a lighthearted way. Exactly. A lot well, of it's humor satire. in this book. Yeah. Yeah. It's satire, and there's a lot of just absurdity. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I take away from it is that no matter how dark things get, keep your sense of humor. Taking things too seriously can be counterproductive to your mental health. Let's give the folks a little context about Banned Books Week, uh, especially for the people who don't know what it is. So Banned Books Week was launched in 1982, I believe, by the American Library Association. Uh, and that was in response to a sudden surge in the number of challenged books in schools and libraries and bookstores. And it is typically held during the last week of September. So it highlights the value of free and open access to information. And this year, Banned Books Week will be September 26th through October 2nd. Do you know what the theme is this year? Uh, yeah, this year's theme is Books Unite Us, Censorship Divides Us. Now, why do you think Banned Books Week is important? Banning something is the suppression of ideas mm -hmm. and it doesn't allow it's an entity deciding they're going to decide what you can and can't read and not allowing you to make up your own mind for yourself right there's an article in publishers weekly um from august 6th there's been a rise in instances of government censorship of books around the world they did a 106 page report and they found that in uh, this is worldwide censorship mm -hmm. is going up and in 55% of those instances the censorship was undertaken by government authorities uh, with Russia leading the way particularly with regards to censoring LGBTQ plus related works hmm. uh, so yeah censorship is is on the rise it waxes and wanes but it never completely goes away by challenged we mean a parent or a customer, you know, with, in the case of school libraries, it'll be usually it'll be a parent saying, oh, we don't think this is appropriate. We don't want our kids reading this uh, in bookstores or public libraries. It's usually, you know, it's going to be, you know, an adult customer saying, I don't I think this is inappropriate. And therefore, since I don't like it, I don't think anyone should have access to it. And so basically it's somebody decide wants to decide for everybody else what they can handle. So to give an example of uh, some of the books that have been challenged and or banned, uh, the list includes The Great Gatsby, Catcher in the Rye, Grapes of Wrath, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Color Purple, Ulysses, Beloved, Lord of the Flies, and of course this book, The Master and Margarita. 
And if I could just briefly mention, um, lots of kids and teen books get challenged as well. Uh, just a few examples, uh, the entire Goosebump series by R.L. Stein, mm -hmm. uh, the, the entire Harry Potter series, mm -hmm. The Absolutely True Stories of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie, The Giver by Lois Lowry, uh, The Gossip Girl series, uh, and Eleanor and Park by Rainbow Roll. Um, all of these, you know, extremely popular and considered modern classics. So somebody is trying to keep us from reading all of these Somebody classics. wants to decide for everyone. Yeah. All right, let's get right to it. With The Master and Margarita, there's something for everyone. There's horror, religion, comedy, fantasy, history, philosophy, and romance per Goodreads. An audacious revision of the stories of Faust and Pontius Pilate, The Master and Margarita is recognized as one of the essential classics of modern Russian literature. The novel's vision of Soviet life in the 1930s is so ferociously accurate that it could not be published during its author's lifetime and appeared only in a censored edition in the 1960s. Its truths are so enduring that its language has become part of the common Russian speech. One hot spring, the devil arrives in Moscow, accompanied by a retinue that includes a beautiful naked witch and an immense talking black cat with a fondness for chess and vodka. The visitors quickly wreak havoc in a city that refuses to believe in either God or Satan but they also bring peace to two unhappy Muscovites. One is the master, a writer pilloried for daring to write a novel about Christ and Pontius Pilate. The other is Margarita, who loves the master so deeply that she is willing to literally go to hell for him. What ensues is a novel of inexhaustible energy, humor, and philosophical depth. There's an abridged version, both in book and audio, uh, and then it's. I think it's harder to get the full version than it is the abridged version, but the one I listened to for this program is uh, the audio by Julian Ryan Tut. Yes, and actually, so if uh, you go to Hoopla, uh -huh. they actually have... The abridged version that he narrates, which is about eight hours long, and the unabridged version, which is literally double the length. It's almost 17 hours, actually. Yeah. And uh, I have listened to both of them repeatedly, and I, I just love it. I mean, he just, he's a British actor, uh, and it shows because there are so many different characters. Right. And there's, you know, all of these Russian names, which some of them are very similar and so he does all of these voices and all these inflections it's amazing and so it really it really is i just appreciate it more and more every time i listen to, Same here. to it the job that he does with this and it really does help you keep you know everything straight because there are three interweaving plot lines each of which could be a novel in and of itself well let's talk about that the three interweaving plot lines okay so Margarita, well, the heroine of the novel, she is trying to reunite with her lover, who's called the Master, and the Master has disappeared. Another plot line is Pontius Pilate is trying to reunite with Jesus, and this story is told in very realistic detail via the Master's novel. So the Master's novel is also the story of Pontius and Jesus, who's referred to as Yeshua, his Aramaic name. And then the third plot line would be the adventures of the aforementioned satanic visitors among present-day Moscow society. And that's written in what we call magical realism. Do you have a favorite of the three plot lines? You know, it changes depending on what mood I'm in. Mm. I just, I mean, yeah. because as as we mentioned at the top, there is literally something for everyone. Yeah. I, I love the absurdity. I love the satire. I think the, um, uh, Satan here, he goes by the name of Voland, and right. he has his motley crew who are just, 
They have deliberately made their appearances very weird and off-putting. They're kind of grubby. They speak in these like weird screechy voices, <laughs> and they just do everything they can. And then, of course, there's the giant talking black cat named Behemoth. Uh huh. Um, Behemoth means hippopotamus in Russian, by the way. Um, you know, he's the size of like a small person, right? And he walks, you know, upright on two legs, and he's, you know, swilling his vodka, and he talks like a person. And then, you know, when people act shocked, he's like, "What are you looking at?" <laughs> um, so they, <laughs> so there's there's a lot of humor um, and absurdity, which I love, but there's also, you know, it's very poignant. Um, so. And so my favorite plot line at the current moment uh -huh. is the part where, um, and this is about halfway through the book, where Margarita has, I should, I should mention there's, you know, this is going to be a spoilery talk. Just right. FYI. We're going to give details uh, here. Yes. So about, it's probably about halfway through the book where Margarita um, is meeting Voland, a.k.a. Satan, and his crew... And the deal is that she is going to do Voland a favor, this favor being she is going to be his hostess for the night for his annual Big Bash, his annual spring ball of the full moon. In exchange for this, she is hoping, it's heavily implied, but it's never straight out promised to her at the outset, it's heavily implied that if she does this favor for Satan, then she can be reunited with her lover, the master, who's been missing for like six months. And just to mention, so it's bad enough, you know, your partner disappears. It's another matter when your partner disappears in 1930s Moscow under Stalinism because people disappeared all the time. He lit, like, he could have been in the gulag. He could mm -hmm. have been dead. I mean, you, you just, if you disappear, it's not cool. Yeah, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't tell her. And so, yeah, my favorite was. plot line of the moment has to do with her meeting Voland and the crew before being the hostess of Satan's ball because there's a that particular chapter has a lot going on. There's a lot of humor, but there's also a lot of highlighting the horror of being a mortal, or as Voland would put it, unexpectedly mortal. All right, now before we plow further into the details, let's just give a little bit more context about this story. There are many themes to this novel. Uh, I want to mention two of them. There's a quote, manuscripts don't burn. What does that mean to you? It means that you can't kill an idea. It speaks directly to censorship. And in the book that... They're talking about the master's novel. Right, exactly. Yeah, the master has written this novel about Christ and Pontius Pilate in an atheistic, uh, an officially atheistic society, and he has been just excoriated by, uh, like, his publisher will not publish it. Uh, all of these critics come out and say these terrible things about it, because this is not the sanctioned viewpoint. Like, you're not allowed to have this viewpoint in public. And, you know, you're not, like, religion is not supposed to be a thing at all. Like, to even mention it is, um, is verboten. And so he just, you know, he, he just becomes, at, so he's, he is censored. Yeah. And he just becomes absolutely despondent over that fact. And he throws his manuscript in the fire. And Margarita actually sticks her bare hands in the fire and rescues part of it. So it's literally, but he's memorized the whole thing. Right which was a common practice of writers at that time because a lot of writers, they were afraid to keep anything in writing because if their materials were found, again, they could be disappeared or, or killed. Um, so, yeah, manuscripts don't burn. Literally, you, know, you can't kill an idea. It speaks directly to censorship. And another major theme of this book is courage versus cowardice. Uh, there's a quote in the book, Cowardice was undoubtedly one of the most terrible vices. Thus spoke Yeshua HaNozri. Pilate responds, No, philosopher, I disagree. It is the worst sin of all. All right, so Master and Margarita was banned from the time it was 
I'm trying to remember. Was it published? No, it wasn't published until the 60s. Right. When Khrushchev allowed it to be published in a Soviet magazine. Yeah, and even then it was redacted dramatically. 12% is the estimate. Okay, 12%, so 12% of it was missing. Yeah. And another interesting note is the one of the commentaries that I read called this an Easter novel. Now, I've read this book, I don't know, six, seven times, and I had never realized that the whole thing takes place from, it's in the spring, from a Wednesday through Easter Sunday of that week. Right. It took me a few times. I think it was probably on my third or fourth listen mm. that, and, and it is, I mean, first of all, so much happens. Yeah. And then you've got the interweaving plot lines and you're going back and forth in time because you're going back to the Pontius Pilate, you know, plot line. And so it is, it can be a little bit disorienting. You know, it takes a while to realize all of this action is taking place in just a few days time. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the characters and then some of our favorite scenes. Margarita, it's interesting because she's the title character, but she doesn't really appear until almost halfway through the book. Exactly. Jesus is called Yeshua because that plot line, uh, a lot of the, the language is stated to be in Aramaic. So they use the Aramaic name for Jesus, which is Yeshua. There's an interesting character in the modern Russian story called Ivan Homeless Panierov. He probably has the most growth. Yeah, I would agree with the that. The novel, because, uh, so he, first of all, he's very young. He's like 22 years old. And he's a poet, and he, uh, and at the at the very beginning, he's you know meeting with his uh, this this guy who's the head of what they call Massalit, which is a uh, government-sanctioned literary society. Which those two those things should not go together because that's part of where the censorship comes sure. in. The only thing that's getting published is stuff that is state approved. And so he, uh, so Yvonne has, Yvonne Homeless has written a, not, a, a written a poem about Christ. And read, this is right, this is a few days before Easter. And this, this, and, this is chapter one. Right. This is chapter one. And he's being, um, he's being heavily criticized by the head of this organization called Massalit for making the character of Christ too lifelike and which too is the realistic. same thing that the master was exactly. criticized for and it's kind of hilarious because that's what literature is supposed to do <laughs> and so it's like point missed you know and it just so right off like from like literally the first couple of pages <laughs> yeah. the irony is wasted on these folks <laughs> these folks who are you know the ones in charge but he goes from Yvonne goes from being like a non-believer in you know, he, he, despite having written this poem, he does toe the, the, the party line, right. literally, of being an atheist and being, you know, proudly atheist and not believing in God or Satan. And all these outrageous events start happening when Voland, the devil, shows up and then his crew shows up shortly thereafter and starts wreaking all kinds of hilarious havoc. And, you know, he tries to sp explain everything away in a logical way and gets himself thrown into the insane asylum, <laughs> which <laughs> that's a, a great scene. It is. It's hilarious. And again, it's a, it's one of the really funny parts of the audiobook, the way it's performed. I'm trying to remember the line where he calls the police. Yeah. He's some, he says something like, you know, I'm you know, homeless. The poet. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, my name's homeless. I'm a poet. Um, I need you to send like 12 motorcycles and, you know, like a couple of like tanks or something like this because. And I'm calling from the, the mental yeah, institution. Yeah, he's like, I'm calling from the institution. Come by and pick me up. I'll show you where we need to go. And then they hang up on him. And then he's like, unbelievable. I can't believe they hung up on me. And, and again, like the way it's performed yeah. in the audio is, is just hilarious. But so Yvonne goes from that. He meets the master in the asylum and the two of them are kind of like parallel characters so it's really interesting yeah. how they're put in the same scene uh 
with each other. And there's a lot of that in this book. Oh, yeah. Everything, the more, and again, like you can read this book over and over and over, and every single time you're going to get more out of it because everything like parallels everything else. Like every, every character, every event, like basically everything that happens, you start making these connections. Like yeah. there's characters in the Pontius Pilate Yeshua plot line that mirror um, some of the modern day Muscovites. Yeah. And, you know, the, the same themes keep recurring over and over again. Yeah. And it just, you get, you get a little more out of it every time. Pilate is an interesting character. And, and one of the very main characters of the book, the Pilate Yeshua plot line is basically the crucifixion of Christ. And we get to see detailed conversations. Well, we'll get to that chapter. Let's save that for a little later. Okay. We'll keep people in suspense. Yeah. Okay. So Margarita's lover is named the Master. We never really learn his true name. Right. However, some people say that he represents Mikhail Bugukov. Right. And, uh, and Margarita represents his wife. It was actually his third wife, apparently. Um who incidentally is the one who, um, after his death, you know, it was decades later, but she was very instrumental in getting his work published. There's Voland, who is Satan, and his retinue. You briefly touched on them. Uh, there's uh, Korovioff, who is seven feet tall, sometimes transparent, very thin. <laughs> He wears a checkered cap and a pince-nez, which is uh, like a monocle, I think. Well, the pince-nez are, they're... It's like they're, two monocles. Well, yeah, it's it's the glasses that don't have arms. They just have, they're the lenses, and then there's the nose bridge, and you kind of pinch that nose, that nose bridge, and that's what holds it on to yeah. your nose. There's no arms. So, so he's seven feet tall, very skinny, and sometimes transparent. So he has a, a comical look, and they describe his clothes, too, are ill-fitting. Yeah. And just comical. Then there's Behemoth the Cat that you mentioned, <laughs> who's part cat, part human. Yeah, he can, he can shift. At, well, I mean, there are, they're demons, spoiler yeah. alert. Um, but so, that, yeah, he, sometimes he shifts, you know, he, he appears to, as a cat, and then somebody, you know, says, you know, something about, you know, the giant cat, and then he just kind of transforms himself into a vaguely, you know, short, -like fat, feline-looking human, yeah. and, you know, then people, you know, they're blinking their eyes wondering what, you know, what's going on. And then there's uh, the character. When I first read the book, I, I actually, you know, I read the print version, not the audio. And I used to always say Azazelo. Mm -hmm. But when I listened to the uh, Julian Ryan Tut version, he kept saying Azazelo. Anyway, so whatever, however you pronounce that character, uh, he is uh, short, stout, very broad shoulders has a yellow fang and flaming orange hair. And so, which is like the opposite of Korovyov. Yes. Who's seven feet tall and skinny. Right. Yeah. Think Laurel and Hardy, only like weird and creepy and sinister, but in a fun way. <laughs> and then the other member of the retinue is Hella. Can you describe Hella for our audience? Yeah. So Hella is uh, she's a vampire who's also a witch, and she's beautiful. Uh, I believe she has with like long, flowing red hair, green eyes. She's always naked, mm -hmm. um, except you know she wears shoes because you know you got to wear shoes. I mean, she's kind of she's kind of like a servant to them. Um, well, they're all servants. They're all Roland. yeah. They're they're all servants. Like she doesn't. She doesn't have a really large part, and I wish that there had been more of her. And I did, it's somewhere I actually did read mm -hmm. that that was kind of a a bit of the plot that got dropped a little bit because uh, we should mention that Bulgakov was working on this novel right up until his death, mm -hmm. and when he was on his literal deathbed, he was narrating it to his wife who was writing it down. And then right before he died, he says, okay, now hide this because no one can see it. <laughs> chapter 12. I mean, this is a pivotal chapter. 
I mean, there's no there's no words wasted in this book. Right. But one of the essential chapters to kind of give context to our audience is chapter 12. It's called Black Magic and its Exposé. Voland and the Retinue are going to give a magic show at the Variety Theater in 1930s Moscow, which, of course, when the book was written was present day. They've tricked their way into this, as they do with everything else. This MC Bengalski comes out. He says that everything in the magic show can be explained. It can all be rationalized away. And he claims that the magic show is hypnosis. And then you see Volan come out. And he asks this question. He says, Has, have the city folk changed inwardly? He, he, he asks that, I think, to Kuroviev, but in such a way that everyone can right. hear it. You know, this is a subtle way to gauge how have the Muscovites changed? Have they progressed? Have they grown, you know, morally? It's kind of a central theme, again, of this work. This work, this book of Bulgakov's, it fills a vacuum left by the deficit of genuine Soviet artists. Kuroviev is sort of the leader of this this magic show. Voland is in charge of the retinue, but Kuroviev really, he performs a lot of the stunts. And one of them is when he makes cash rain from the ceiling. What's happening here is the audience thinks they're going to get an expose of how the magic is done. But the expose is really the hypocrisies of Soviet citizens and the Soviet system. So when the cash starts to rain down from the ceiling, of course what's going to happen is the audience starts to fight with one another. They start to snatch at the money. Uh, and so they don't realize that this is the big reveal of the magic show. It's their character. So they show themselves to be individualistic, which of course is contrary to the stated aims of the Communist Party. They're highlighting the contradictions within Soviet society. And the thing about it, too, is that they don't learn. Like, they, there's nobody has a revelation of like, oh, gee, <laughs> you know, we, you know, we're, we're trying to suppress our human nature through this. You know, like nobody learns anything. Yeah. Everyone is on the hustle because living conditions are so oppressive. Um, there's, you know, enforced communal housing, you know, there's, right. you know, there's shortages of everything. And so everyone is on the hustle all the time trying to improve their situation. And the next thing that happens is in this scene, well, there's a lot that happens, but Koroviev creates out of the ether this, this uh, very fashionable lady shop up on the stage and they have dresses and shoes and perfumes and it's got all the latest stuff from Paris, you know, all the brand names, which you can't get in Soviet Russia, you know, and there's a lot of that context that I think that gets missed, you know, in Soviet society, there was one brand for everything and it yes. was not Western brands. It was the Soviet official brand. So he creates this shop with all of like the Chanel's and the Givenchy and all the Parisian brands. Of course, the audience is just agape. And Kuroviev invites someone, anyone, up on the stage. And of course, there's a hesitation at first. And then someone comes up and she, you know, and she tries on a dress and she tries on the shoes and the perfume. And he says, you know, it's yours. You can take it. And, you know, she she walks off stage and then there's a mad rush. Everybody wants the latest Parisian fashions. This frenzy of the women highlights the desire that has not been eliminated in Soviet society. It's just suppressed. There's a character in the audience. His name is Arkady Apolonovich, I think. And he says he demands an exposure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he doesn't realize that the exposure is already happening. Yeah. And do you remember what happens then? Oh, I love it. It's one of my favorites. Uh, it always makes me laugh. So, yeah. So this guy and he's 
he's a very you know important i'm doing air quotes that the folks at home can't see important uh, person and he stands up and he's like you know we we came here for an exposure we demand to see an exposure of how these tricks are done and so korovyov says okay here's an exposure for you <laughs> Um, and he's, by the way, so this this, Ar- this Arkady Apolonovich is sitting there with his wife. Right. And so Korovyov says, uh, so last night you told your wife uh, that you were going to a meeting, uh, but you were actually at your mistress's apartment for like four hours. Uh, you know, what were you doing there? How's that for an exposure for you? Right. And then, you know, his wife is all, how dare you impugn the dignity of Arkady Apolonovich? And, <laughs> and then I think, like, their niece is also sitting there with them or right, something right. like that. And she's like, I knew it. You know, I knew you were no good. And just, yeah. you know, chaos. Uh, but, yeah, just, like, very blatantly exposes. He's like, oh, you want an exposure? Here you go. And then not only that, but then there's some literal exposure because after the magic show is over and the, the, everyone goes out into the street, they're all happy. They've got their, their pockets are filled with cash and the ladies have on their Chanel and their this and their that. Well, pretty much as soon as they all leave the theater, and we're talking hundreds of people, um, everybody's, you know, brand new clothes disappear. Yes. So the, all these women are running around the street naked and the money has turned into like beer bottle labels and just various yes. like detritus. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're, they're passing, you know, they're trying to pay cab drivers, they're going to the bar. And then, you know, as soon as the money changes hands, it's not money anymore. Right. So, so that was the exposure, not the exposure they were expecting. Not so much. <laughs> A lot of trickery among uh, Voland and his retinue. Another pivotal uh, chapter for me was chapter 16, which is the, in the Pontius Pilate story. It's the execution of Yeshua. Every time I read this, I just love it for... The detail. I, I don't think I've ever read anything that really put me there so much as this chapter of this book. And so it is the execution of Christ. And we're right there on Bald Mountain with Christ and the two prisoners. Dismiss and Hestus. Yeah. He talks about the, the heat and the sweat. Uh, and he just goes, I just... I don't know, there's something about the just his writing. It's so realistic and all the sensory details. I just find it so compelling. And he talks about how the three of them, you know, they're up there on their crosses, you know, waiting to die. Somebody holds a sponge up to them so they can drink. Christ, Yeshua in the book, uh, refuses the sponge. And so then it goes to one of the other uh, prisoners. And then he talks about the flies that mm-hmm. are cir- circling around these guys. Uh, just really compelling details. And I always feel like I am there, you know, with those people. It is. It's very vivid and, you know, and then Matthew Levi, who at this point is his one disciple, He's like hiding up in the mountains and he's like watching this whole thing. And that kind of goes on and on and on. You know, he, Matthew Levi is like, you know, oh, well, you know, I'll try to, you know, overpower the guards or, or something to free him. And then he's like, no, no, that's, that's not going to work. And he's trying to figure out like what he can do. And you really feel his helplessness. He just feels so helpless. And at one point, and this is just dragging on and on and on. And he actually, at one point, mm. he's like yells at the sky at God begging God to just kill him and put him out, Yeshua, meaning Yeshua, just kill him and put him out of his misery. Yeah. Well, so Matthew Levi... And then the storm rolls in, right? What's that? And then doesn't the storm roll in right after he does that? Well, yeah, the storm rolls in toward the end. But you remember that Matthew Levi is carrying a bread knife? Yes. Yeah, because he was going to stab the guards. Well, what I was just reading, which I didn't really I, I never really understood so he, he stole the bread knife right 
which we find out. He stole it from a bread shop. But I was just reading something uh, that suggested the reason that he brought the knife was not to attack the guards. It was to kill Yeshua so he could oh. be put out of his misery. Yeah, and see, and that is, um, and that's just a small example of with this book, like there's so many ways you can interpret things. Yeah, and that's another reason why, like this book never really gets old for me. Yeah, because like you know I can be reading something and then like interpret it one way and then I'll read it again. I'm like, oh well, actually maybe this means this. Right. Um, well, like what you which just said is about my idea of a good time. Yeah. Like what you just mentioned about uh, how when the ladies' dresses disappeared, that was an exposure. That, that's an angle that I had yeah. never thought of. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, just to reinforce what I was saying, you know, he t in that crucifixion scene, you have all the Roman uh, soldiers, you know, and he talks about, you know, he really talks about the, the military aspect in detail too, which is yes. fascinating because it gives you historical context, you know, about how they were centurions and the guys on horseback and, you know, all these different legions of soldiers. And, and he talks about how they're standing out there in the heat, you know, and how even the soldiers can't, can't yeah. take the heat. Yeah. I talked about the flies circling around the prisoners on the on the crosses and he talks about the flies circling Jesus head that undignified imagery of the flies contributes to the sense of Yeshua's stark humanity it's an angle that we don't really hear you always see Jesus presented as deity as this god figure immortal in this story, in this scene specifically, you really see the stark humanity of Jesus. And uh, I just find that really compelling and interesting. Absolutely. Do you want to talk about one of your favorite scenes? Oh, sure. Uh, so, and I alluded to it earlier because, you know, I get excited mm -hmm. talking about this book and I got ahead of myself. So, uh, Moving along to chapter 22, um, which is, um, so Margarita has, so direct, right before this, Margarita has met Azazello. Azazello mm. has approached her on a park bench, and after some back and forth, basically, you know, gives her a proposition, says, hey, you know, you can be reunited with the master who, remember, has been missing for the last six months. She has no idea if he's alive or dead. What's the title of this chapter? By Candlelight. Okay. And that meeting that you're talking about actually takes place right underneath the Kremlin wall. Ah. So they're sitting right under the Kremlin. Oh, interesting. And see, I and I don't, I don't think I caught that. And they're also they're they're watching the funeral procession. Oh, of right. A I character who that. we didn't even have a chance to talk about, but we don't even have time for that. Uh, so Azazello has told Margarita after a little bit of back and forth, say, "Hey, look, you do my boss a favor, and you know, it's." He doesn't outright promise, but strongly implies that she can be reunited with the master. Unlike the rest of the Muscovites, who let... Meanwhile, there's all this chaos going on, because this is after the magic show and its exposure. And there's all these, you know, crazy stories of what's going on in Moscow. And, you know, she realizes... You know, she's, she's a logical person, but she doesn't deny reality when it's right in front of her face. Like, she is, she adapts her worldview when presented with the evidence of uh, the demonic and the supernatural. Mm. She's a person, so she has fear, but she overcomes her fear because, like, she'll do anything to be reunited with him. That's how much she loves the master. Right. So she's like, I'm going to swallow my fear. She's like... I know that I'm going to be meeting with the devil, but I'm going to I'm going to suck it up and I'm going to do it. I think her and greatest so, fear is not being reunited. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that that fear is worse than anything else that she can imagine. 
And so Azazello gives her this magical cream, um, which turns her into a witch, which is a fantastic scene, but <laughs> we're not we don't even have time for that. So she's so she's been turned into a witch and she has arrived at the site of uh, the Satan's annual spring ball of the full moon which takes place on April 30th, which is the night before May Day, mm. which is a major, you know, like, pagan uh, holiday, Valpurgis Night. This is another scene that I absolutely love. Yeah. You, and, and you feel like you're there. Oh, totally, totally. Um, so... It's a party makes, on the river. Yes. But this is directly at... This scene is directly after the party on the river. So she has arrived at the site of the ball. And so far, Azazello is the only character that she's met. Uh, so at this point, she meets Korovyov, who's basically going to be kind of like her guide through like what she needs to do during mm. the ball. And so Korovyov takes her to Satan's room. And the great thing, the thing that I love about this chapter is that it's got this great balance between... Um, the supernatural and this this absurd farcical humor mm. and um, the horror of mortality. All of this in a chapter that's, what, maybe eight pages long? So Margarita meets, she sees Voland, and he's sitting on his bed, mm -hmm. and Hella is massaging his knee. He has a sore knee, which, according to the Bible, is from his fall from heaven, but mm -hmm. according to uh, Voland, it's because he had a run-in at a wit with a witch at one of the other balls. You know, something got out of hand. Never explained. Mm -hmm. So Hella's massaging his knee, and Voland is playing chess with Behemoth, the, the giant cat. cat. The chess pieces are alive right and uh behemoth it, he's basically like a jester character they're playing chess when Korovyov brings margarita in and very smartly margarita says oh no can continue your game you know i'm sure chess journals would love to see this game can <laughs> please continue your your game and so she kind of like instantly you know, kind of like wins their respect because, you know, she's standing there like trying not to shake in the presence of Satan, but she's being polite. She mm -hmm. even makes a little joke. You know, she's really quick on her feet. Mm -hmm. So then it, then we have this whole humorous sequence because Behemoth is cheating at chess by telling his characters to like run off the board. And then Voland is accused. I mean, they're bickering. They're like, if it, if anybody's familiar with like the odd couple, <laughs> it's just, they're just like bickering. Satan and this giant talking cat are bickering with each other over chess. And then Behemoth decides to get ready for the ball by putting on a bow tie and gilding his whiskers with gold. And <laughs> Voland right. is like, "What is with your outfit? This is how you're going to dress for the ball." Why are you wearing a bow tie when you're not even wearing pants, you know? And, you know, Behemoth is like, cats don't wear pants. What, that would be ridiculous, you know? And, and then Volan's like, well, why, why are your whiskers gilded? It's like, well, you know, Azazello and Krovioff got all dressed up. You know, why can't I get dressed up? I don't want to embarrass myself at the ball, you know? And so you have this whole, like, comic yeah. bickering sequence, and That's Azazello great. and Krovioff are muttering to themselves uh, about, you know, and Behemoth's cheating at chess by telling his chess pieces to literally run off the board. And then all, so you have that, and then all of a sudden things take a total turn. Because sitting next to Voland is also a globe, which is actually the Earth. Yeah. Like, the globe is alive as well. And so Margarita, so Voland says, oh, you know, I see that you're admiring my globe. And so Margarita is asking a, about the globe. And, like, they zoom in onto this little, like, you know, village in the middle of nowhere that is at war. Right. And it zooms in closer and closer, and you see this village that is on fire mm -hmm. and, you know, people who are, you know, dead on the ground. And then this is this is my uh, my favorite quote from this chapter um, where Volan says, uh, oh, 
this is regarding Ab, uh, Abaddon, who... Abad, uh, isn't Abaddon? I'm not sure on the pronunciation. I've heard it both ways. But either way, it means destroyer in Hebrew and also means angel of the bottomless pit. Fun guy. He's just like, he's like standing like behind a curtain in the room. And so Margarita and Voland have witnessed the scene of war. And then Voland, you know, without really any context, says, Abaddon's work, as usual, is flawless. He is of a rare impartiality and sympathizes equally with both sides of the fight. Owing to that, the results are always the same for both sides. And then he doesn't elaborate on that mm. anymore. Now, what, what that means to me um, is that particularly that part at the end the results are the same for both sides meaning with war like nobody if like you might have an official winner but nobody wins because on both sides there is death there is destruction uh there is chaos i remember the scene and i love the the globe that's lit from within right is the implication that abaddon is controlling the events on the earth well i'm not sure because one of the analysis that i read stated that more with regards to Roland to Voland than Abaddon that like he doesn't have to create evil because humans are already mm. violent and greedy yeah. and destructive okay so we're not sure what his so, agency is yeah it's it's really it's not made terribly clear but it it kind of seems like Abaddon is kind of like an overseer almost but again, like that whole, you know, Abaddon is of rare impartiality and sympathizes equally with both sides. So it's not like one side of a conflict is good and one side of a conflict is evil. Mm. It's all kind of the same. Mm. It's, I mean, there's, you know, and, and then we, you know, and then all of a sudden, and then we move on to the ball. Like there's not really. Yeah. So it is one of those great quotes where, you know, you could, we could probably talk about that right. for an hour and uh, just analyzing, you know, these quotes. And there's a lot of that throughout the book, like what I was saying before about, you know, you read it one time and you may interpret it one way and then later you read it and you might interpret it another way. All right. Are you ready for the ball? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Let's, let's. Uh... All right. So Margarita is asked to be the host of Satan's Grand Ball. Again, there's so much we could talk about here, uh, but this is where she learns for certain that this role comes with a reward. Everybody knows what's implied by that, but it's not spoken until the very end of the chapter. It seems like this ball takes place in a parallel universe and that there's no actual real-world time. It seems like there's a lot of hedonism and indulgence and then there's this grand fireplace where the guests come through the fireplace, right? Yeah. I mean, talk about making an entrance. Uh, in the book, <laughs> it's described as a fireplace that's so big you could drive a five-ton truck through it. And the way the guests arrive is basically whatever state they were in in death is how they arrive. So the first guests come shooting down, you know, like Margarita's waiting you know, she's all, you know, they've gotten her all prepared for the ball and she's standing there with the gang um, and they're waiting for the first guest to arrive. And all of a sudden, this skeleton that is hanging from a noose shoots out of the fireplace <laughs> and then and lands on the ground and then poof, turns into this handsome young man, you know, and he's, you know, he's dressed for a party, you know, he's in his tuxedo mm -hmm. and... So each guest arrives. So like, and then like after that, a coffin comes shooting out. So I think and the implication is that these guests are arriving from hell. Exactly. Yes, they are arriving from hell for uh, for the annual night of revelry. And most of these characters at the ball are historical figures, right? And so this could be considered like a tribute to evil in the world. This party, Margarita's role that she's hired to do is paying these guests respect and thereby honoring the role of evil in the world. 
And there's an interesting, because I just reread this chapter earlier. And so Korovyov, who's kind of acting as her guide, he's like right. standing next to her and he's like whispering in her ear like, right. oh, this is so-and-so. But he, but he is like, you know, over and over again, he really drills it into her. You must acknowledge absolutely everyone. You must, you know, but you must not show anyone any particular favoritism because, you know, they, they get so jealous. Um, uh-huh. But it, uh, so one of the things that I had read was that this ball, which is like so decadent and so over the top, was actually based on an event that Bulgakov had gone to. He had gone to some writer's event that was very, very lavish. Mm-hmm. That part where Korovyov is like, you know, they, you know, they, they, oh, he says they can't handle it. He's like, he's like, they, you know, and these are, these are murderers and poisoners and people who are like, you know, throughout history, you know, the worst of the worst. And Korovyov is like, they can't, they can't handle not being paid attention to. You must pay attention to absolutely everyone. And I was wondering if maybe that was Bulgakov's little dig at like, the delicate egos of like sure. the writers. Yeah, when yeah, yeah. Was no, that's funny. That party. makes sense. I like it. Um, so it's it's you know it seems like a throwaway line, but when you know the background, it yeah, seems yeah. like a dig. Now, for me, the the climax of this scene and one of my favorite parts of the book is uh, there's two characters who've been beheaded in the novel. Uh, Berlioz, the chairman of the literary organization, and uh, Baron Michael, who I think has something to do with the Tenants Association, right? Yes, well, Baron Michael was the one who, when Voland first comes to Moscow, and we should mention to the folks that mm-hmm. Voland, before he puts on his Black Magic expose, he's presented himself as a uh, professor. Right. And so there is a government agency, because there's a government agency for everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a government agency that uh, their job is to show foreign visitors around. Right. Well, they're spots. Right. And so Baron Michael is the one who uh, shows Voland around okay. town, you know, when he is, you know, undercover as, you know, Professor Voland. And, um, you know, and Voland, you know, knows right away that, you know, that he's, and so he's been reporting, so Michael has been reporting back to the Kremlin. And by, by the way, Kremlin is never mentioned, no. I don't think, in the book. Well, like the, is except it? maybe, I think, in that meeting between Azazolo and Margarita, I think it does say that they're on a bench. In front of the Kremlin? In a park underneath the Kremlin wall. Okay. Yeah, because specifics are never mentioned. I mean, because you couldn't mention specifics even in satire. Like, you know, you can't mention the name Stalin. You can't mention any of this stuff. It's all like in code, so to speak. So anyway, so Berlioz and Baron Michael are at Satan's Grand Ball. One of them, I think Berlioz gets his skull made into a cup, a drinking cup. Baron Michael shows up after that. It's either Behemoth or Azazelo shoots him. And with the blood that's coming out of his chest, they pour that into Berlioz's head, which has been made into a cup, which is all the way it's done is it, it might sound horrifying, but it's very funny in the book. Volan takes the skull cup with the Baron's blood in it, drinks it, and then he hands the the remainder of what's left in the in the skull cup to Margarita. Yes. And he tells her to drink from it. Yeah, that seems to be like sealing the deal, exactly. so to speak. But it's also interesting because Van Volen says something very interesting because you know, you know, and he can see that she's frightened, and he says. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, "Don't, don't worry. The blood spilled long. The blood spilled and was absorbed into the earth long ago, which just highlights the fact that we're in an alternate dimension." Korovyov actually calls it the fifth dimension. They're in a place that is outside of space and time, in the ball. Okay. And that that is actually what ends the ball, if I recall. Yeah, is that's that, at the very is end. That scene. All right, and one last thing I want to mention about the specific chapters 
at the end of, of the book, the chapter 32, when Volan sees Margarita's compassion for Pilate, he says, Volan says to Margarita, you need not upset yourself. Everything will be made right. That is what the world is built on. I thought that was really meaningful that Satan would tell Margarita, who is the, the heroine of the book, don't worry, everything will be okay. That is what the world is built on. And, and to me, it has it says something about there is a natural balance between right. the light and the dark, the good and the evil. Right. And that you you can't have one without the other, which um, Volan basically says directly to Matthew Levi at one point, directly speaking to the need of light and dark. And then we also... Uh, in that scene, we also see that Yeshua and Voland, sometimes they, they like work together. You know, yes. it's like Yeshua's like, you know, hey, I want you to do this. Right. And Voland's like, okay, I'll, you Get know. Get it done. Yeah, because there is there is a balance. So it's like they're, you know, like in some ways that, you know, like they are adversaries, but they're also not. Right. They're working toward the same outcomes. Oh, yeah, it's that quote from Faust. I'm part of that force that always wills evil and that always does good. And if you think about it, that's kind of like their, their relationship. Yeah. Voland and Yeshua. And there are so many references to Faust <clears throat> throughout um, this novel, which I have not read Faust. Um, I've always been kind of like too intimidated to read it, but... Mm. You know, now I want to give it a go yeah. because in my research, I've you know there are so many references to it in Master and Margarita that it's really whet my appetite for it. Do you have any uh, theories about Margarita as the hero that you you might want to share with our? Oh, audience? do I have theories? So I don't know if it all like hangs together or not. So Margarita is absolutely the hero because. Without her, the master, and we should say, so, and this, I got, I got issues with the master. Mm. I know she loves him. I have issues with him because she has been, like, pining away, just deeply unhappy for six months, wondering where he is, whether he's alive or dead. And he, all this time, has been in a mental institution because he committed himself without telling her and because he couldn't deal with the rejection of his novel. And the reason that he didn't tell her was to spare her because, according to him, it would be too cruel to let her know that he was, you know, in the asylum. It's like, well, dude, at least she would know that you're alive. Right. And so... Um, <laughs> it's a little cowardice on his part. Right. Which, yes. as we and know from the rest of the book, mm -hmm. is the worst sin. Yes, exactly. And so, meanwhile, so she literally, she makes a deal with the devil. As a result, one of the, one of the people that she meets at the ball, she ends up getting freed from hell because it's pretty obvious that person shouldn't be there, but we don't even have time for that. So she frees that soul. And as a result of using her, basically her one wish to free this person, rather than asking Voland for the master back, the Voland is like, Voland says, oh, well, you know, I didn't really do anything. So we'll just, we'll do a mulligan on mm. that. Tell me what you really want. And Krovyov and Azzella were like standing next to her and they're totally like cheering her on. They're like, ask for what you want. Yeah. This is your chance. Do it. And so she does. She says, I want to be reunited with the master immediately. And then bang, there he is. Yeah. Um, in his hospital gown, you know, now he thinks he's really crazy because he's standing there, you know, with the devil and, you know, all these demons and his, you know. Yeah. And I think he questions whether or not dimension. it's real or not. Right. And so she not only f releases a soul from hell who shouldn't have been there in the first place, she is reunited. She impresses um, Voland with her because she's, you know, she's not greedy. 
you know, she's not greedy. Not at all. In she's fact, not, every time I read it, I can't believe that she's yeah. not, you know, more aggressive in in her ass. But she's not, and she's not a hypocrite either, because she, he even says to her, you know, when she uses her one wish on somebody else, he's like, oh, you know, you're a very, very, you know, you're a very generous person. And rather than pretending to be, like, all pious and everything, she says to Voland, no, I'm really not. I just, I gave this person hope, and I couldn't live with myself. I couldn't live with the guilt knowing I gave someone hope and didn't do anything to help them. And so it's not really selfless. It's so that I can preserve, like, so that I don't feel guilty. Yeah. So she is honest. She is brave. She um, treats everyone with respect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of the people that Voland and his crew have been tormenting with their little pranks have been none of those things right and so she is an authentic person so here's so here's how the rest of my theory goes matthew levi comes to voland and says yeshua has read the master's novel and he likes it and he wants Pontius Pilate to be freed from his purgatory Pontius Pilate has been in purgatory from his guilt for you know, 2,000 years. years. Matthew Levi says Yeshua has read the novel. We don't know when this novel was actually read because none of this exists in real time. And as we know, manuscripts don't burn. Mm-hmm. So even, so, you know, Yeshua could have been aware of this story at any point. So my theory is that all of this was designed by Yeshua through Voland right. to... Get Margarita to do Voland a favor. You can't, you know, Voland can't just, you know, the, the devil can't just be granting wishes to people. That's not the devil's gig. He makes deals. You have to do, he, you do him a favor, he will do you a favor. Mm-hmm. So, Voland comes up with this, oh, I know, I need a hostess for the ball. And works that whole scenario mm-hmm. so that she is, so that she does this favor. So that Voland, in return, can do her the favor of getting the master back. The master is the only one who can free Pilate from his purgatory because of the power of the art of his novel. Imagination. Yeah, because he, ima- yes. he wrote Pilate's story. Exactly. Right. Which is what made Yeshua, you know, yeah. want to be reunited with him. So Voland tells the master, you are the one who has the power to free Pilate, do it. And so the master shouts, you're free, you're free. Yes. And then and then a moonlit staircase appears, and Pilate, who through 2,000 years his only company has been his dog, mm-hmm. he and the dog go up the staircase, and they meet Yeshua. And the two of them finish the philosophical conversation that they had been having prior to the crucifixion and that is when Pilate says to Yeshua cowardice is not cowardice is the worst sin because Pilate has been living with the consequences of his cowardice for 2,000 years yeah no I like that Margarita had not had the courage and the smarts to take Volan's deal none of these things would have happened and so she is the hero of this story. And the irony is, like, the master keeps trying to protect... I'm doing air quotes again, folks. Mm. The master keeps trying to protect Margarita. He puts himself in the asylum to protect her. And then, when they are reunited, he tries to drive her away. Oh, I'm a sick man. I'm mentally ill. I don't want you to be stuck with me. And tries to break up with her. And <laughs> she gives him what for... She's all, dude, I literally went to hell for you. Mm-hmm. Y- you you have no idea what I have done to get you back. And you want me to go away? Fine, I will. But, you know, you know, tells him how cruel he is. And so then he immediately is like, oh, no, 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 you're right. But then he still is not accepting reality. He's like, that's okay. We'll be crazy together. Like, he so- is not accepting. And so it's ironic. He thinks that he keeps trying to protect her. Right. But meanwhile, she's the one who's protecting him. She's the strong one. Who has more agency 
in in the stories, Voland or Margarita? Yeah, you know that's. I mean, because you you implied a few minutes ago that Voland really just arranges everything to get the outcome. Yeah, I, you know what? I've I go back and forth on that. I mean, I kind of at the at the moment that we're recording this, I kind of feel like their agency is about equal. It's interesting. I think there's a good argument for that. And you know what? If we were to have this conversation a week from now, I might have changed my mind and come up with a whole new theory because that's how this book works. So the titles that I've heard that are related to this, uh, you often hear about Alice in Wonderland, the, the magical realism and Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. Uh, of course, Faust. Yes. That's a direct source for this book. And then uh, I hear about Dead Souls from Nikolai Gogol, which I've never read. But yeah, I haven't either, but I, I want to after all of this. Yeah. Any others that you've you've heard about that are uh, talked about well, so, or like yeah, a related and, title? And I am not familiar with these, but there's a... Um, a book from 98 by another Russian author, and I probably won't pronounce his name correctly, Victor Pelevin, called The Life of Insects. I've heard of it. Um, and the, uh, the Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. Talking to, talk about banned books. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he had, uh, you know, we all learned in the 80s what a fatwa was, you know, mm. as a direct result of the death threats, the that were put uh, on Salman Rushdie, which have never been lifted, you know, and ironically, you know, that, that uh, propelled him to international fame. Yeah. Um, I've never read that. I haven't either, but I, but again, I, it's one of those books that's been on my list for a long time. Yeah. Me too. So hopefully I'll get around to it. And then we also have some, uh, some supplemental uh, nonfiction materials in our catalog. Um, if you really want to have a deeper understanding of the historical context on overdrive, we have, the uh, which is one of our download services. We have the audiobook of the Great Courses: uh, mm. A History of Russia from Peter the Great to Gorbachev. Mm. Uh, we also have uh, an Overdrive audiobook, another Great Course: The Rise and Fall of Soviet Communi Communism: A History of Twentieth Century Russia. And then we also have Stalin: Court of the Red Star, and we have that in print format and as an ebook from Overdrive. And those are just a few. Those were we. There are many, you know, titles on Russian history. Those seemed like the most relevant. Yeah. Uh, if you really want some extra context. So we've got lots of digital and printed resources yes. here yeah, at the exactly. library. Yeah. Book uh, in yeah in uh, in book and audio. So that does it, Kristen. Uh, <laughs> you know what? It doesn't even. It's not even close to doing it. That's <laughs> that's the hilarious thing. And it may sound like to people listening at home that we gave away the entire book. We just scratched the surface. Right. We just barely scratched the surface. And I also just want to mention briefly that. For the amount of plot in this book, this book is really not that long. No, it's it is, three, four hundred pages. It's like 400 pages long. Yeah. So, uh, and a typical novel is usually around 350 pages. So, I mean, we did not give it all away, folks. That is just a taste. And again, the audiobook version by Julian Ryan Tut it's is delightful. absolutely amazing. Okay, well, thank you, Kristen. And Thank thanks, you. Thanks to our audience for joining us again. We will see you next time on Check This Out. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to Shelf Logic. Make sure to hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Follow us on social media where we are at MCLDAZ. 